are listening to a shortcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science shaping the post-COVID world series, a digested version of our live online public event series. This event was recorded on 15th October 2020. A full version is available to download via the LSE website or from your usual podcast provider. Welcome to our event today entitled Is It Time to Cancel Household Debt? I'm Joe Spooner. I work in the law department here at LSE. So the topic of our event today and our title might seem radical, but we seem to be living in an unprecedented era in which the only pragmatic thing to do is to think radically. Uh, The IMF this week repeated its diagnosis that we're facing the worst global economic conditions since the Great Depression. And this seems to mean that now is not the time to be content with incremental change or reform. And now is not the time to sit on our big ideas and to wait another 100 years for the next big crisis of this magnitude to come along. So now is the time for thinking big. To bring some sorely needed optimism, surely this is a time for reshaping our economy. If not now, then when? And this is what we're here to discuss. We're lucky today. We have a wonderful panel of speakers who are brimming with experience and ideas and I I think arrived today with visions for how we might move past the current crisis. So I'm very excited to hand you over to them today. Uh, Before I do, I must add that this is an LSE event and we can never talk about debt at LSE without mentioning and thinking of David Graeber. David's magisterial book on debt has been a, a true inspiration to all of us. It's never far from our thoughts. And we really lost a wonderful friend, colleague and a mentor when he tragically passed from us this summer. So today I wanted us all to think of David and to everyone who was close to him. So I'll now start to hand you over to our speakers. We'll begin with Dr. Jonna Montgomery. Jonna is um, head of the Department of European and International Studies next door, as it were, at King's College. And she is most notably, I guess, among her many achievements. Uh, She's the author of the wonderful book, Should We Abolish Household Debt? So I've tried to connect, you know, over the the past 12 years since the 2008, the way in which private debt, uh, household debt, especially in Anglo-America, its role within this kind of Keynesian macroeconomic uh, debt-led growth model has really created this kind of modern day debtor's prison. You know, mortgage is the ways on the middle classes, right? The need to, to maintain your mortgage debt is about your, your savings, your safety net, your security in old age. Everything's kind of wrapped up in making this kind of modern day debtor's prison so that the mortgage debt becomes priority payment. Or for those who are not in the privileged middle class in which, again, housing is their only assets, right? So there's no savings accounts. There's no, it's just housing, which again is itself not a guaranteed asset for, for those that are highly leveraged. There's also the kind of debtors prison who those who aren't even on the housing ladder, that those that have student debts, consumer debts, fringe finance, predatory lending debt, payday loans, but also priority debts, debts to the state or quasi-state institutions. And those payments weigh on them. So when we think about the demands of repayment you know, in the economy, at this moment, we can see how the everyday life of people connects to big macroeconomic flows. This demand for repayment before acted like a tax guaranteed form of converting present day income into revenue for the financial sector. At this moment, we can see that, as my colleague Brian Davy talks about, debt is now the agent of misfortune. 
it is not the passive result of misinformation or miscalculation of the bad financial citizen. Actually, indebtedness and the inability to pay debt is because of misfortune. And the debt itself then becomes an agent, an amplifier of misfortune in, in everyday life, you know, with one mispayment can set off a chain of events that will lead us all the way to the global financial markets uh, when sort of aggregated together. Debt itself is the agent of misfortune here in, in exacerbating what is already a really situation of economic hardships as the pandemic limits all of our interactions. So if this is the kind of reality that we face today, it's more and more people are beginning to realize that you know, debt is something, a real imposition in their everyday life and, and is an ongoing problem that they'll have to deal with as restrictions are tightened, as people are increasingly coming up against this very long and hard winter. So what does that mean? Well, it means that debt cancellation is no longer about who's morally worthy of it, right? It's seen as a necessity, something that, that can be rolled into a kind of package of measures. And now we get some momentum and to normalizing debt cancellation is something that can be used quite effectively to reduce hardship in a time of wider economic collapse, basically. You know, we can quite easily, as these packages are, I'm sure, being drawn up at the present in the Bank of England and in central banks around the advanced world and coordinating with treasuries and financial regulators to find ever more ways to bail out the markets, we can begin to demand that this kind of heresy becomes necessity, that we can give it a long-term refinancing operation. We can give debt relief to households, give them access to these low interest rates through 0% kind of balanced transfer vehicles. That would give relief to all kinds of people to just pay less. That's not radical. That's pragmatic, right? But we could also look at debt swaps for mortgage product to forgive the debts that were deferred, for example, and, and extend mortgage deferral, especially for those in a primary residence, but also missed rent payments as well. You know, these can be wrapped together into a, a nice financial vehicle of distressed assets of, of landlords and bought out. In the same way the central bank is routinely buying distressed assets off the market, you know, these can be put in. And that was the kind of rolling jubilee, this kind of radical idea of how can we hack and use the same financial tools that are used to kind of engineer buyouts elsewhere to actually target that towards people and using the tools of the economy to, to actually bring relief. And also the state can act to buy distressed debts. Right? Whether those are from councils, again, this is the rolling jubilee. Are they council debts? Are they energy arrears? Are they priority debts? Are they student loans? There's all kinds of ways that the state is already acting to buy up distressed assets. It just needs to widen its portfolio, I think would be the, the rather technical way of putting it. You know, these are possible in this moment because they're necessary and they will actually achieve some good in a time of mass hardships. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jana. So next, I'm going to hand us over to Professor Deborah James. Deborah is a professor in our anthropology department at LSE. She's also a fellow of the British Academy. She is the author of Money from Nothing, Indebtedness and Aspiration in South Africa. And Deborah has also just completed, I think, an excellent ESRC-funded project entitled An Ethnography of Advice Between Market Society and the Declining Welfare State. Thanks, Deborah. My own work has been very much at the sort of coalface looking at debt advice. And so I want to speak in praise of debt advice today. Now, my research was conducted obviously before COVID, and therefore I'm talking more about the prehistory to the COVID moment. Another word of 
warning. For those of you who know anything about the details of the United Kingdom's welfare system, we now have universal credit. My research was done shortly before that was rolled out. So the welfare system was far more complicated at the time than it is now. The complexities do remain to quite a large extent. So I'm going to take you into a specific debt advice encounter in order to show you a little bit about the complicated interrelationship between private debt and debt to the state. This was a person called Susan who came in and she was in a great deal of distress. And because of the fact that her, her special guardianship allowance that she was being given by the Department of Work and Pensions, because she was looking after a grandchild, had been suspended. And as it turned out, it was a, an error. As a result of that, plus the fact that she had certain debt, she was in arrears to, to the local authority for council tax, she had been forced into borrowing more and more money in order to counter all these you know, negative effects of the situation. So she was in trouble. And the debt advisor's name was, was a pseudonym actually, but it was called Jennifer, said to her, well, I need to sort out your income. And the way she did sort out the income was by finding out the ways in which this person, Susan, was entitled to certain benefits, which she may be was not really aware of. As she sort of worked through the whole process, telephoned endless people in different branches of the state, whether it be the HMRC or the Department of Welfare and Pensions, and eventually the local authority itself, in a very subtle and not necessarily huge manner, she managed to sort of counterbalance the, these major problems that, with which her client had been confronted. And that was partly because she had worked out that the client was now actually eligible for housing benefit, which she then applied for on behalf of that client, and also for council tax reduction. She also managed, of course, to reinstate this Department of Welfare and Pensions special guardian allowance. So what the advisor was, was enabling this person to do was to somehow balance her income and find a way around the kind of massive complexity of the situation. And not necessarily, as some very critical authors have spoken about, in a, in a way that was sort of all about disciplining them or saying, stop spending money on unnecessary things, don't consume stuff, don't buy fancy goods, but rather just here's a way to balance your situation in, in a much more sort of sober and thrifty manner. People have often said, well, debt advisors are really just providing a temporary solution, but I feel as if they do perform a massive uh, job. Now, what then remains interesting to, to understand is that it's not only at the household level, but also at the local authority level that this sorting out of income has to happen. And this is a quote from a colleague of mine, Claudio Sopransetti, talking about the way in which austerity has actually instantiated this by making certain cuts with, from central government down to the level of the local authority, by making those cuts then sort of devolve right down to the level of the household What's in fact happened is that this financial burden gets pushed down. Now, in the case of Susan, her council tax arrears were one of the very substantial parts of the debt that she owed. And it was also called a priority debt. It was going to be the kind of debt that could not be escaped. If, if you are in priority debt, you will be prosecuted. The bailiffs will come and they will recover that debt no matter what. Now, why was the council and why were the local authorities all over the place? pursuing this debt with such fierceness and with such zeal. And the reason for that was precisely the fact that the central government had sort of pushed austerity upon the local authorities and therefore, in a sense, 
they had no sort of option but to pursue individual debtors for these amounts of money. So in some sense, uh, the need to sort out income at the household level also has reflections at the level of these uh, local authorities. And what the very, very savvy and canny debt advisors were partly actually doing was drawing down as much money as possible from central governments, especially from the Department of Work and Pensions, in order to make sure that their clients, who in a sense became like intermediaries, were able to benefit from those central resources and to some degree then lessen the burden on the local authorities. So the client was acting as a kind of intermediary between the central government and the local authority and a way in which some of these monies were, were redistributed and reimbursed throughout the system. So the solution then, I think, is a, is a highly complex one, but ultimately it does seem to still involve a very important role played by people like these, what I call them, second-order decision makers. That's what they've been called by John Elster. And I think the thing to, to note here is that if we were going to try to ultimately do some of these radical solutions, including the, the one that, that has been proposed at some of the workshops I've been to, where the government should buy up the debt and ultimately you know, lessen the burden upon ordinary people, the problem still remains. What about these debt fair cases where people owe more to the state than they do to private creditors? It seems as if if the government's going to buy up debt, the first debt it's going to have to buy up is the debt <laughs> that its own local authorities owe to it. And there's something very weird going on there. Now, even though an allegedly the austerity regime has been lifted temporarily during the COVID crisis, the fact remains that these local authorities are still starved of finance. And and yet we are asking them to do more and more. And so I feel like part of the solution, uh, especially if there is, if there were to be some sort of household um, debt reduction, would involve bringing local authorities more fully into play, but also giving them proper funding. And no more of this devolving of belt tightening down to the lowest level. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Deborah. I'm going to hand you over to Sarah Jane Clifton, who is director of the Jubilee Debt Campaign, a leading organization for research in global debt issues um, and carrying out uh, work on e education on the causes and solutions of debt as well and campaigning in solidarity both with indebted countries, especially with a focus on the global south at the moment in the context of the COVID crisis, but also looking at uh, issues of campaigning regarding indebted households also. So thanks very much, Sarah. I'm going to start by giving our answer as Jubilee Debt Campaign to the main question that this session is focused on, which is, is it time for a household debt write-off in the UK? Um, our answer to that is a very strong and resounding yes. In the context of COVID, we think a write-off needs to cover debt which is causing people harm during COVID. What we're seeing is, is some interest now from organisations, sectors who previously wouldn't have supported a write-off for a write-off, which is exciting. But a lot of people just want to focus on the debt which has come about because of COVID and are not taking into account the debt which was already there before COVID, which is a lot of debt, which was already causing a lot of harm to people. And it obviously is making people's lives extremely difficult during the pandemic. So we think we need a comprehensive write-off that covers both of those types of debt and we think it also needs to cover social security debt, council tax debt, 
rent debt, utility bills, and obviously the consumer credit debt like credit cards and loans. And we obviously need a really highly tailored approach to these different types of debt because they're very different. They they have different institutions and processes um, and issues associated with them. We think there definitely needs to be some government funding to pay for it. For example, for the reasons that Deborah has gone into, we, we can't and shouldn't expect councils to take the, the hit for a council tax write-off. But we do think actually that where the private sector is involved, that there needs to be some burden sharing around that. We don't want a write-off to lead to the collapse of any important employers or institutions, but we think where, for example, high-risk lending has taken place or where firms or investors are continuing to make very big profits from these debts in the context of the pandemic, that some burden sharing of that should should happen in response to the big wave of debt crises which spread across countries in Africa, Asia and Latin America in the 1980s and 1990s, which came about because of a a boom in irresponsible lending from US and European banks, but also because of an incredibly unfair economic settlement that countries faced at the end of colonialism, which wasn't really an end of colonialism. This wave of debt crises occurred and a very big global campaign sprang up in response, led by campaigners in the global south. And my organisation, we were essentially the UK wing of that campaign, And the campaign was successful. It won an incredibly big debt write-off of um, the debts of countries in Africa, Asia and Latin America, about $130 billion for 35 countries, which made an incredibly significant difference for those countries, obviously, and mapped very quickly to uh, increase public spending and then to measures like maternal mortality and child attendance in school. The important learning for us really is both that it's possible to secure a write-off, however may radical it seem, but also that there are actually limits to write-off as a, as a solution to problem debt. So many of those countries which received debt cancellation in response to that global campaigning they are now in debt crisis again, just a decade later. And we are actually now rebuilding a really big global campaign to try and get debt cancellation for them again. And the reason why we're having to do that is because the write-off just tackled the debt which had been built up, but it didn't tackle the reasons why countries were being pushed into debt in the first place, the structural reasons which were making them dependent on debt. And we think there's massive parallels between that process and the problems that we see in terms of household debt in the UK. What it really means It's not just enough to write off the debt. We need to tackle the structural issues which are pushing people into debt in the first place. And obviously, um, the other panellists have done an incredible amount of amazing research and work and analysis showing what those are. For us, this particularly means sorting out our social security system in the UK, building a system which actually provides social security, which basically gives people enough money to live on, which it doesn't at the moment. Thank you. Thanks so much. Hey, next, I'm going to hand you over to Jerome. Dr. Jerome Ross is an LSE Fellow in International Political Economy at the LSE Department of International Development. He works on the political economy of global finance, sovereign debt, international crisis management, and household debt, of course, now. And um, among Jerome's accomplishments is the wonderful book called Why Not Default? So I'll hand you over to Jerome now. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Joe. Basically, what I wanted to do with my short intervention is to basically just jump off uh, right where Sarah left off, really, by looking at some of those structural dimensions behind the problem of debt dependence and to look at what might be needed if we are to ensure that a debt cancellation this time around 
doesn't become sort of a recurring theme that we would then have to reinstitute every 10 years. And if we look at household debt today, um, we do see a slightly different dynamic in the sense that it's never really been forgiven on a large scale or canceled on a large scale in recent centuries. But we do have this incredible record levels of household debt, especially if we look at a country like the United States. I'm going to be mostly referring to figures from the US because it's the world's largest economy, also because it's got uh, excellent data available to illustrate some of my points. But in the US today, household debt is at a, at a record level. It is at over 14 trillion US dollars, uh, which is higher than it was at the peak uh, just prior to the 2008 crisis. And so I think once again, just like in the wake of the 2008 crisis, a question emerges with this coronavirus crisis, which is who pays? What we saw last time is that with austerity, with the bank bailouts and with the insistence on full repayment, even of the most heavily indebted households, what you saw is that the burden really fell upon the debtors and upon working class families and taxpayers. And most of the creditors were bailed out and got off scot-free. And that is obviously something that has fed into some of the tremendous anger and indignation at the political establishment that subsequently fed not only into sort of beautiful social movements that we've seen, like the Occupy movement and the anti-austerity movement in, in Southern mm -hmm. Europe, but also into some more grim phenomena, including sort of the rise of the far right, uh, which really has to be seen, in my view, in the context of the global financial crisis and in the context of the age of austerity that we've just lived through. So if we want to avoid that kind of a repeat of that kind of scenario, clearly some kind of burden sharing is necessary. And that will have to involve some kind of debt cancellation, right? And we need to tackle some of those structural dynamics that trap households within a situation of debt dependence. And that, in my view, would require some kind of transformation in what we normally call the real economy. So obviously we need a transformation in the way the financial system works and the way that credit is provided. But in this particular intervention, I want to look a little bit more at what we sometimes call the real economy. Perhaps it becomes clearer if we break down household debt into its various components a little bit and look at what are some of the reasons that these are all booming. One aspect of household debt is, which has come up on a number of previous contributions, is the question of credit card debt, or for instance, of payday loans, the various forms of consumer finance, if you will. This is not actually the largest share of, of household debt, but it's a very important one because it often involves much higher interest rates, short-term loans, and they're often very indicative of problems that households encounter in financing their basic needs in the here and now. Another important component of household debt, actually the largest component, is mortgage debt. In the U.S., we see that uh, mortgage debt is now at over 10 trillion uh, U.S. dollars, which is higher than it was in 2008. And obviously, mortgage debt is in turn closely connected to the structure of the housing market and the way in which we provide housing to ordinary households. Another important component of household debt is student debt. And student debt, especially in the US, has risen in very dramatic fashion in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, but it's obviously, again, connected to something that's been happening in the real economy, which is this dramatic rise in tuition fees, which is also a phenomenon that we obviously see in the UK. So in the US, for instance, student debt is at over one and a half trillion uh, dollars, which has doubled in the past 10 years alone. Then a fourth one that doesn't really come up in many uh, conversations, uh, not a lot of people are aware of it, but a very important growth has taken place in car loan debt. And that goes again for the UK, but especially again for the US, where now over one point, there's now over 1.3 trillion US dollars in car loan debt, which has been an 80% increase in the past 10 years alone. 
And that in turn obviously is connected to all kinds of demands that are made by the transportation system that we have, which is a lack of affordable and sufficient public transport. And then a fifth issue, which is not so relevant in, in Western Europe and the UK, but which is very relevant in the US is the question of medical debt. One in three US workers faces significant medical debts and over half of those who do face these medical debts have already at some point defaulted on them. And that obviously is connected to the way in which healthcare is provided in the US, both the fact that it's extremely unaffordable and the fact that there is no sort of universal uh, free health coverage. If we're going to tackle these different aspects of household debt in a satisfactory way, there has to be a corresponding change in the way that the actual economy functions, right? So that will have to involve at some level the higher wages. It will have to involve an increase, like Sarah said, in, in welfare spending. It may involve all kinds of things like a, a move towards quantitative easing for the people. We need to find ways to boost the reserves of ordinary and poor households. Uh, that people can build up some buffer for a rainy day and so they don't depend on credit card debt and payment loans and other kinds of, of debt in order to, to finance themselves out of these tricky situations that they can't foresee. A second, affordable housing. Absolutely crucial. If you're going to tackle the debt crises that keep recurring throughout history, you're going to have to find ways to enable people to live uh, affordably. And that's going to involve social housing. It's going to involve you know, changes to the structure of the, of the home, of home ownership. But there's a variety of things that can be looked at, but it's very important to consider that in the context of, of the emerging debt crises. The third, like I mentioned, lowering tuition fees. There's no way you can, ca you can tackle the student debt crisis without lowering tuition fees. The fourth, public transport. This is something that's gonna be absolutely necessary anyway as part of you know, rendering the way that we travel more sustainable in context of the ecological and, and, and the climate crisis. It can also help reducing people's dependence on cars and therefore on car loans. So public transport, investment in public transport is another thing that we can think of. And finally, especially in the US context, universal health coverage, absolutely crucial if we are to consider um, ways to move beyond debt dependence. Thank you very much. But thank you very much to everyone who joined us and attended here. And thanks most of all to the excellent panelists for really remarkable insight. Thank you. Thank you.